From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The military branches are out with their wish lists for the coming fiscal year. The Army's top request on the annual unfunded requirements list is about $150 million for the multi-domain task force in Europe and the Indo-Pacific, according to Breaking Defense. Defense News reports the Air Force lists $115 million in investments in advanced technology at the top of its list. Another Virginia-class submarine is at the top of the Navy's list. The General Services Administration will automate the FedRAMP process more by the end of the fiscal year. The head of GSA's Technology Transformation Service, Anil Cherian, says the FedRAMP office is working with the National Institute of Standards and Technology to automate parts of the authorization process. FedScoop reports Cherian says another goal is to establish agency liaisons for FedRAMP by the end of September. The Coast Guard's information technology infrastructure is on the brink of catastrophic failure, according to its commandant. Admiral Carl Schultz says a server malfunction last year knocked 95 of the Guard's vital systems offline. Fed's group reports Schultz says the risk of failure is because of, quote, years of investment trade-offs. Department of Justice Chief Information Officer Joe Klimovich plans to retire from the department after almost 40 years in government. His career includes time at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and other agencies. Joe is here to discuss his time in government and what's next. Joe, welcome, and thank, uh, you, thank you for coming on the thank program. You, We're glad to be here. We talked a little bit before we went on the air about the accomplishments that you've had at the Justice Department, but one of the things that you attributed that success to is just the time that you've been there. What's your observation in, the, in your years of government at how much tenure is important to getting things done as a CIO? Uh, tenure, I think tenure is absolutely important to, to uh, leading and, and uh, successfully implementing large-scale, complex IT transformations. Uh, in this job, I've been there almost six years, uh, maybe a month shy, and the last job uh, at NOAA as a CIO there, uh, over seven years. Uh, so a couple of challenges is you had to learn the organization. I, in both of them, I came in cold from the outside. Um, but you also are inheriting a budget that was prepared two years, two or three years in, a, in, a, in, in the prior. And you also have big acquisitions. And if you want, if typically your, uh, a lot of your IT modernizations occurring through acquisitions. So shaping budgets, shaping acquisitions takes minimum of two or three years. Uh, acquisitions can take a lot longer than that. So uh, it, it, you're, you have to build a strategy, you have to build a coalition, you have to collaborate with all the others, get, get buy-in, that's extremely important. So coming in in two or three years and saying you've changed the world is really not that realistic. Um, it's a it's a huge undertaking, especially these key CIO positions. Has the the collaboration, the acceleration of collaboration among the CXOs at agencies across government, has that helped some at least? It has. Uh, I think we we all talk to each other every really every week uh, to some degree. We have uh, CIO council meetings uh, pretty much every month, and and a lot of other meetings in between. Mm -hmm. And we do get together. Uh, we do share best practices, share lessons learned. Uh, we. Uh, uh, are all trying to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And we all face essentially the same challenges. The, the mission area can be different, but the underpinning on the IT challenges, very, very common. All right, what do you think are the most important things that you've accomplished in your six years or so at Justice? 
Well, when I think about it, uh, I've always tried to operate under the mantra of we want to uh, keep pace with American innovation. I always thought it was, I started my uh, tenure there at Justice, if the Attorney General can go down to Best Buy or goes to a cabinet meeting at the White House and has better technology or somebody else does, that's a, a failure on our part. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing at a macro level, the, the uh, legacy technology um, exposes you to cyber risk, uh, inefficiency, uh, ineffectiveness in executing the mission. Uh, so when I got there in 2014, we, we started on um, several large-scale complex transformations, uh, focusing on providing better service, reducing cost, improving uh, security. And I think we made remarkable progress in a number of areas. Um, but but uh, overall, we, we spend over $3 billion a year in IT within the, the departments. About 10% of the, I, the overall budget goes to IT. And for all these major investments, uh, we've kept everything within 10% of cost schedule and performance on the metric side. So the, the taxpayer is getting value from the, the investments in modernization. Uh, specifically, we've also um, we've s added significant capability to our cybersecurity. We've scaled cybersecurity uh, significantly within justice, uh, but we've also now are offering that to other departments and agencies, in some cases as a full security stack, including operations, uh, so that we can, there's, there's a lot of smaller departments and agencies out there that may not have the wherewithal to make those kind of significant investments that today's cybersecurity demands. So let's team together, let's work together, figure out some way we can collaborate where we can provide uh, those services. Um, I think it's a, it's a really best practice. In the area of um, uh, providing improved services, we're now ISO 20,000 and 27,000 certified. And that means we've got uh, standard uh, practices that everybody's following. Those practices are, are baked into our technology platforms. And think about it as a, as a major uh, uh, change uh, to uh, change the dynamics. You and I were at an, an event not long ago where we talked about your transition to the cloud. You're going to be almost or entirely yeah. in the cloud here before too long. What's the lesson that you would, or lessons that you would convey to a colleague or someone coming behind you at the Justice Department or whatever who's on that same journey? Well, um, when I started, we had 110 data centers. Uh, we have closed about 100 of those data centers right now. So we've got a few more to go. Uh, moved most of those services to clouds. We also, incidentally, we had no cloud services you know, running in commercial environments when I got there. Mm -hmm. We're now over 30 uh, CSPs that we're, where we're operating in. So we're in a very much of a hybrid operation, hybrid environment. Um, need to understand what you, what you have and uh, try to optimize as much as you can. But we made that conscious decision that we weren't going to try to uh, optimize uh, before we, we close the data centers. We wanted to get everything to a, a commercial environment, make it more resilient, and, and we've achieved um, uh, over $600 million in cost avoidance in the time that I've been there, and most of that's been moving through commercial cloud environments. Email's another great example. We had 23 different email systems when I got there. We're down to one cloud, secure cloud-based email system. It, email was always problematic, no issues today. We have about 10 seconds left. What's next for you, Joe? Uh, I'm going to take a job in the private sector and uh, uh, management consulting, and I'm going to try to help other uh, IT leaders. I uh, want to take advantage of everything I've learned and, and give it, pass it along 
pass it forward to, to other uh, technology leaders. We'll look forward to continuing to call on you for your experience, Joe. Thanks very much. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks. Up next, the keys to embracing new technology in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how new tech is disrupting government and the best responses from agencies. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. New technology like artificial intelligence, blockchain, and 5G is disrupting government, whether government's ready or not. Two experts on new tech and staying ahead of the curve are here. David Bray setting up a new global center at the Atlantic Council, and he's former chief information officer at the Federal Communications Commission. Tim Persons is chief scientist and managing director of science technology assessment and analytics at the Government Accountability Office. Both are Fleming Award winners. Gentlemen, thanks very much for coming on. Tim, what are some of the examples of the kinds of tech that I mentioned or some that I didn't mention that you're examining right now as far as their applications and potential to disrupt government? Sure, you're, you mentioned all the key ones. I would also throw in there the idea about synthetic biology, uh, even personalized medicine. Uh, we're in an era of convergence of the technologies. It's not just AI, it's what AI is enabling, let's say, in the healthcare sector mm -hmm. to help drive and find, uh, like some worker recently led on uh, finding functional pharmaceuticals and sort of de-risking the, the process through the drug development life cycle because companies are asked to spend a billion dollars on their own margins to do that. It's mm -hmm. a very high consequence, high risk uh, endeavor and you're trying to deal with uh, very dread diseases like uh, Alzheimer's or cancer and others. So uh, this is an era where you're talking about the computational sciences with the life sciences, with the physical sciences. And that's what's uh, exciting uh, and, and I think brings a lot of opportunity. The government has a lot of leadership in this. Dave, the convergence is the thing that you and I talked about more than the technology itself when you were at the FCC. Right. In that cloud technology is great, this is great, that's great, but how you put them all together to meet mission to, to gain success for mission executors was kind of the thing that you always talked about. I agree 100% and I think what we're seeing is, is in some respects organizations have to go back to why are we here mm -hmm. because what's now possible, I mean even what was possible just three years ago, we are now continuing to make leaps and bounds at accelerating rates and as Tim was mentioning what we're really seeing is both the convergence but also the democratization of these technologies. The good news is they're going to be increasingly available to everybody. The challenging news is they're going to increasingly be available to everybody. And so whether it's something that's done by the public sector or something that's done in partnership with the private sector, we've got to figure out new ways of delivering the mission faster, more mm -hmm. effectively, and doing it across organizations, across sectors as a whole. So either one of you take this that wants to. That democratization challenge to me, Dave, strikes me that that means that people within organizations who are not necessarily technology people can go, well, I really need to do this, and the right. tech people probably would think this is okay, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. And in a government environment, in an enterprise environment, that's not really good. What's the implication for that on leadership and the speed with which one should move enterprise-wide, but maybe can't from a government 
process perspective? So I, I would recommend that my view is the separation of people that are tech people versus programmatic people is a outdated concept. Mm. The reality is everybody's a mission person and you have to be familiar with the different ways you can deliver the mission. But that means as a leader as a whole, it says you need to set up what's my vision, what are the boundary conditions, and then from that, how do these new technologies, this, this advances in data, how do they allow us to change what we deliver to our stakeholders faster as a whole, but have it be something where everybody's working together as opposed to in silos. And that's the transformation of the workforce. It mm -hmm. really is, you'll have to be on some relative amount or, or scale, as it were, of expertise. You don't all have to be, to do AI, you don't have to be machine assembly code-like level people doing you know, lots of data statistical uh, computations. However, you should have a basic understanding of what's in that machine because you're going to have to uh, have some amount of um, usage of it as a tool and then have proper oversight and accountability of that, for example. What's your sense of how agencies are doing that and, and the ones that are doing it well, what they're doing to do it well? I think it is ultimately an organizational and cultural change and those um, agencies that are thinking of it through that lens first, even though the technology and the issues are a challenge, no doubt. I think those that are seeing that in this way and providing that kind of leadership uh, to see and say, look, this is AI is going to disrupt uh, certain types of jobs, but it's not really the, the job apocalypse, as it were. We're not going to be all out of work. Right. It's, it's our work is going to change and AI becomes a tool. So uh, those that have that visionary leadership, those agencies that are seeing that and moving uh, in that direction to enable uh, their folks and see it that way. I think are are going to be better off. About 90 seconds left. You're here. Uh, I mentioned you're both Fleming Award winners, yes. and you're here to promote that. Thank you, by the way, for the invitation to come and be a part of that this year. I'm looking forward to that very much. We're looking forward to having you. What's yep. the significance of those awards in the context of all of the things that we're talking about, Dave? So, Arthur Fleming really sort of saw how government could serve the public through both technology but also leadership and, and new approaches. And so carrying that torch forward, I think we're now in an era in which things are accelerating the pace of change. And, and one of the things that, that we need to all be aware of, whether we're in the government or outside of government, is there's going to be these sort of low probability, high consequence events that are going to challenge across agencies to respond to it. So we need to embrace the new, the new generation of leadership and encourage them to, like Fleming, think ahead in terms of how do we transform how we do the mission. Uh, what we will also say is the award ceremony is going to be on June the 9th. We'd love to have people join us. And then also Fleming Awards at gwu.edu if you're interested in attending. I, I will be there for sure. And again, thank you for the invitation. What do you want people to take away from not just the award ceremony itself, but from the concept of the awards, Tim. Right. It was actually scientists centuries ago, Isaac Newton, that had the, the great quote of saying, if I've seen farther, uh, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of what you see in the state of the art of the federal government and what's going on, a lot of these transformative, convergent technologies are standing on the giants that have come before us, uh, recognized through someone like Art Fleming, who needs to be remembered and is the namesake of the award. But former award winners are, you know, Bob Gates, Secretary of Defense. It was Daniel Pat Patrick Moynihan. It was Elizabeth Dole, uh, Bill Phillips at uh, NIST, who's still an active uh, physicist doing advanced quantum computing. So, so uh, all of these folks are, uh, when you mentioned the disruptive technologies, these are the leaders of the past that we're standing on their shoulders and I think Fleming has is recognizing appropriately that leadership in the public sector. To do. And uh, you gentlemen are in great company. Thank you very much for coming on. I'll see you on June 9th. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. Thank you, Francis. Yep. Up next, working toward a more connected government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the best approaches between offices and between agencies. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. The president's management agenda says the government needs to modernize IT, improve management, and update the use of data. Central to all of those goals is teamwork within the government and with all of its stakeholders. Katie Maleg is vice president of government effectiveness at the Partnership for Public Service. Katie, welcome back. It's great to have you Hi, back. Francis, good to see you. What are you seeing organizations do effectively that are successful in this teamwork concept, whether it's within their own organizations or with other agencies or agency to citizen or whatever? Well, a key element is that the federal government is expected to change dramatically in the decade ahead as technology advances, more data becomes available, and the demands on federal employees will continue to grow and shift. So we undertook this study to look at three areas in the federal government that will evolve over time too, technology, data, and the workforce. And what we've seen is that agencies need to be better connected, have more robust connections within government and outside of government. And so within agencies, we've seen that those that do this well bring diverse perspectives to the table mm -hmm. so that they have a better understanding of potential solutions and the skill sets that multiple players bring, but also they have a common understanding of what the problems are that they're trying to address. You use a term in this that I would like you to define for me a little bit, robust and broad-based connection. Yes. What does that look like? So I think robust could be deep and multi-layered, and then broad-based means within agencies, between agencies, and outside of the federal government, including working with customers and with external stakeholders. So it strikes me then that from the outside looking in, agencies are probably doing an okay job of establishing those relationships and building them is kind of the missing link. Is that a fair assessment, it do you It is, think? but there are also additional complications. So within an agency, there may be a structure to try to facilitate connections across functions. But when you get to between agencies, it's no one's job to help agencies connect to one another. So we need other tools to do that. And really, the culture isn't set up to try to facilitate that. So if it's no one's job to establish those connections, should it be someone's job to do that? And if so, whose job should it be? Because everybody's already pretty busy. Well, it would be helpful if one of the center of government agencies had that capacity. But resources are limited, and they can't mm -hmm. always do that. There are cross-agency councils and management areas. But sometimes it boils down to uh, an individual or an organization reaching outside of their organization to better facilitate those connections. And there are numerous benefits. So you have four different categories in this mm -hmm. report, yeah. and I, we don't have time to talk about all four right. of them. But the one that I think is the most important is the one that we've already touched on, and that's agencies working together. Yes. You also write about agencies collaborating internally, engaging yeah. the public, and establishing connections with stakeholders outside government. But yeah. those agencies working closely together, yes. What would crack that nut given the structure that you're right, OMB doesn't have the resources to structure that. Right. They do some things on some levels with the, the councils, the CXO councils and others, but what's where's the right spot for that to happen if nobody really is set up to do it now? Well, there are a number of benefits and it really takes initiative for agencies to do this. So one example is when agencies share data. If we are looking at the drivers of unemployment, we can certainly look at the Department of Labor statistics, but you'll get a more robust and fuller picture of unemployment if we also look at information from Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, perhaps the Department of Education. And then by connecting the dots, not only around data, but even sometimes it's sharing facilities, agencies can better serve customers. A customer from one agency that may be eligible for a benefit might also be eligible for a benefit in another agency. And if agencies are better linked, they can help customers in that regard. We also have a more pragmatic example of the IRS sharing workspace with the Social Security Administration, which means that 
they're going to save money because they're sharing the workspace. But also as a customer, if I need to visit the IRS and the Social Security Administration, I can do it in one place. We have a little bit more than a minute left. It strikes me there are some barriers, policy barriers, that are kind of legacy barriers that exist. For example, one holdup to what you're talking about for a long time, it may still be the case, Social Security couldn't share the death master file with the Internal Revenue Service yes. and with other agencies to see if people that were receiving benefits yeah. or getting tax return uh, tax refunds were actually still alive. Yeah. What would what would it take to examine those kinds of policy barriers to see which ones of those need to come down in the in the 21st century? The federal government is one of the greatest innovators in history, and yet these cultural barriers like resistance to change risk aversion, fear of failure, get in the way of federal employees and federal organizations doing that. So looking ahead, we're hopeful we can identify additional examples of where agencies have overcome those barriers and help spread those across government. Uh, it's called a roadmap to the future toward a more connected federal government. So on the Partners for Public Service website, congratulations. Katie. Thanks, Thanks, Francis. For I appreciate it. About it. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. The West Conference celebrates 30 years of bringing military and industry leadership together this year. It features uniformed and civilian leadership and three engagement theaters covering a lot of different topics. It is happening next week at the San Diego Convention Center, March 2nd and 3rd. You can get more information and register at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.